Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 601 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday, February the 8th, 2011. We've got a great show today for you. I've got Sam Benowitz, who is the founder and president of Rain Tree Nursery, hanging on the line. We're going to have him on for an interview today to talk about... Um, Unique edible plants that you can grow in your backyard, whether you have a small yard or a large acreage. Uh, unique plants from all around the world. Many things that I've talked to you about before, uh, where I've actually found them in their catalog. Raintree's an awesome company. We'll have Sam with us in just a second. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Self-Defense Consultants, headed up by Frank Sharp, Jr., 10-year veteran instructor in the firearms industry. Fortress is a new sponsor. Uh, this is the first time I'm mentioning them on the show, but they are absolutely a high-quality, uh, very well-respected organization. Provides excellent training on, on uh, handguns, uh, sh- shotguns, uh, rifles, you name it. If it's a weapon and you want to learn how to use it properly, you can get training with uh, Fortress Self-Defense Consultants on it. If you cannot get to their location, they will actually bring training to you uh, as long as there's enough people involved uh, in that type of thing. So I want you to check out Fortress Self-Defense. Welcome them as a new sponsor to the show uh, and know that I personally endorse them for all of your firearms training needs. Next up today is uh, MERS Radio. Rob, of course, has been with us for over two years uh, sponsoring the show. He's just signed up for another quarter. I love MERS radios because they allow me to take secondary communications around my property and combine that with security through the use of motion detectors. So I get secondary communications with a range of about one to two miles in most instances, but it can also sector off my property, and I know if someone's creeping around there at night or just if one of the dogs is trying to get out of the yard. Uh, That's really nice to be able to know and have all of that integrated into one easy-to-use system that anybody can set up. Hell, even I can set it up. Uh, That's how easy it is. So check out MERS-radio.com. Remember, the best way to find all our sponsors is to go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Next up today, I just want to let you know that the gear shop is down for a couple days for maintenance. Uh, it will be back soon, probably Wednesday or Thursday. We're doing some things to uh, better serve the audience out there. For instance, when we come back, if you're part of the member support brigade, we'll actually give you a discount in the TSP store. I want a novel idea. It's just been something we've wanted to do but haven't been able to do. So we have new shopping cart software. It's being integrated. A new look and feel to the website. Easier to, to navigate. Some new products coming in. So uh, check out the gear shop when it's back. And And don't worry that it's down right now. Real quick, I want to remind everybody of something. I do not run the gear shop. It is not my company. It belongs to Tiffany and Rich Rockwell. I license the logo and the name to them, and I'm kind of an angel investor in their company. It's a way to look at it. If you have a problem or if you need something from the gear shop, go to the gear shop contact them and they can help you. If you email me about your order, I can't help you because I don't have any access to that information. I am very hands-off at that level. So please take all your customer service inquiries directly to the gear shop. Over the next couple days, you can email me. I'll forward it on because the shop's down. But there's a contact link there. Please don't contact me about your order. I can't help you. Uh, Not that I don't want to. I just can't. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, that includes 20 videos uh, by me that are available nowhere else. 
It also includes about well over a hundred dollars worth of free eBooks now. Uh, it discounts to about over twenty vendors as well. In fact, I think it's getting close to twenty-five vendors. I have some new ones coming on soon. I have a really big announcement tomorrow about a new discount vendor for the MSB. You'll have to tune in for that tomorrow to find out who it is. And with that, that pretty much wraps up the housekeeping. All right, folks. And as I said during the intro segment, we have Sam Benowitz of uh, Raintree Nursery on the show with us today. He's the founder and president of Raintree. And as most of you guys know, I'm a huge fan of Raintree, and I've been recommending them now for probably about two years. They have some of the most unique plants available in the United States today. Many of them are from all over the world. And uh, again, we have Sam with us today on the Survival Podcast. Thanks for joining us on TSP today, Sam. Yeah, thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. Hey, Sam, could you... Uh, Tell the audience, and me honestly, because we're just finally getting a chance to meet now, a little bit about your past, how you got into, you know, planting things in agriculture, gardening, permaculture, whatever, whatever side of that you see yourself as being involved in. Okay, sure. Well, I started out, um, I've been doing this now for about almost 40 years, and I grew up in uh, Southern California and was kind of part of the ecological movement or hippie movement or whatever you want to call it from the 1960s and I felt like uh, I was living in a like kind of a wasteland in, in Southern California everything was just suburban as far as the eye could see and everybody was a consumer and nobody produced anything and and uh, so I just was attracted to uh, moving to a more rural area and, and trying to learn some skills to try to um, improve uh, the planet and I started out um, my my, par- uh, my parents were real involved uh, politically kind of like in, in radical politics like in the 1930s and, and like that and my uh, uncle like fought in the Spanish Civil War and were opposed to fascism and so I had always had this kind of political interested you know in trying to make the world a better place but as i started uh study i started studying journalism and political science and i went back to washington dc to work as a intern and i kind of saw the way government really worked that it was all run by you know big lobby groups and it wasn't like it was uh said to be in the in the textbooks the way it was supposed to run and and i went out and i campaigned for like eugene mccarthy and and George McGovern and people like that a long time ago, and uh, for the Green Party, and the, I mean the Peace and Freedom Party in California, and I kind of discovered that I'd go door to door and talk to people, and I don't think I've ever convinced any anybody of anything, you know, going door to door and talking to people. So I kind of got the idea: well, the only way you're going to change the world is by actually physically changing the world and bypassing all the, dis- you know the uh, endless discussions that people have about how to change the world. Let's just actually go out there and, and, and change it for ourselves. And if we do that and enough of us do that, maybe we can actually change enough of it, you know, to, to, make, a, to make a difference and make it sustainable in the long run for, for everybody. So that was kind of my, how, you know, the kind of political motivation turned into just a, more of we wanted to do homesteading and and uh, growing plants and making plants available to people. So you know what I'm hoping is that 
like people can actually fly over the Northwest or something and actually see, so maybe even see a difference in, in uh, you know, that, that people are growing their own food and growing, um, you know, making the planet more sustainable. So that's kind of been my my motivation all along, and, uh, you know, I'm really happy that I was able to to do what I've been able to do. You know, um, I, I couldn't have envisioned a, a better intro there. Uh, obviously, we didn't know each other, folks, before I was able to bring Sam on, but uh, you've just pretty much summed up the entire philosophy that uh, we've built this community around. We even have, um, you probably haven't heard it yet, but our intro song is a song I collaborated on called The Revolution Is You. And, and it's about just that, that, that simple things like planting a tree or a garden can make a bigger change than holding up a sign or calling somebody or, or getting angry because when you take control of your own ability to feed yourself and others and you make a positive change, that that's going to have a bigger influence on somebody like your next door neighbor than the knocking on the door. So, uh, Sam, I guess welcome home, man. You, <laughs> you found well, some kindred yeah, spirit we- here. Well, thanks, Jack. And when you, yeah, when you kind of briefly told me about what you're doing, yeah, that's what I thought. It's kind of exactly the same thing that that we're doing, and that there's you know lots and lots of people doing throughout the world. You're you're absolutely right. There are people doing it all over the world. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, your baby there, uh, Rain Tree Nursery. I first found you guys online. I was looking for trees, bushes, shrubs, vines, things that were perennial to plant with a lot of my upcoming permaculture efforts. Uh, we're fixing to uh, move, and we're moving on to a five-acre piece of land in uh, rural Arkansas. And you were one of the first companies I found, again, about two years ago. And then I got this catalog, and I started going through this thing, and I started finding plants that um, that I remembered my grandparents from Ukraine talking about. And then I found all these other plants that, like, I had never even heard of before. So... How did you put something like this together with so much variety and so many things from all over the world? Well, I, I mean, it's not like I thought of it all ahead of time and, and then worked towards it. it it's kind of happened a little bit at a time. I was here in western Washington, and in western Washington, people were growing, like in their backyards, they were growing like red delicious apples and Bartlett pears and Bing cherries. And there were varieties that did horrible around here. They got all kinds of diseases, and they didn't have enough heat to ripen. And people thought, well, they were just not very good gardeners. And they didn't realize that actually what had happened is that maybe 100 years ago or 80 years ago here in the Pacific Northwest, people were growing all these varieties that did really well, and they were there were commercial peach orchards of beef curl-resistant varieties and things like that. But it all kind of died out when, um, in eastern Washington, they got irrigation in the 1930s uh, with all the dams being put in, and all the fruit was moved over to there. And so they grew varieties that did well in their climate and marketed it all over the United States. And as soon as marketing became national, um, people asked for the, you know, assumed that these were the best varieties, and all the garden centers and places that sold plants started to sell these commercial varieties that did well for commercial growers in certain places but didn't do well for anyone else. And so um, it, I just happened to go up to the research station at, at Mount Vernon in western Washington, the Washington State University Research Station, and it turned out that Dr. Robert Norton there is this really great guy who's still alive and, and working, and he was... Uh, 
trying to find out what varieties, just kind of on the side of the station. It's like a little side project because he was interested. He was a pomologist. He was just wondering, well, what things will do well in our climate? And so he started bringing things in from all over the country and all over the world and just testing, you know, thousands of varieties to see which would do well. And, and we've been working with them for over the last 40 years and just testing things to see which things would do well in our climate that had really good flavor and kind of rating them and and doing, you know, involved in that process with them. Now, in the last few years, they've stopped funding all this because, you know, all the funding has been cut off from, from uh, state, uh, from universities. They're having a really hard time. And so universities have now reverted to a model that um, whoever, whatever private companies have got large sums of money to pay the researchers, that's the research they'll do. They ignore the fact that 85% of their funding is from taxes and public funds. Absolutely. And what are they interested in uh, funding right now is the GMOs. Right. Or, or what, yeah, and for, in the wine industry, um, which is owned a lot by the tobacco industry, um, they'll fund that. Or they'll, fund, they'll fund anything. They'll fund what we want as long as we give them a million dollars to do it. They really are um, neutral as far as at the universities. They'll fund whoever has the money to do it, but it's only the commodity groups like the wheat growers and the wine growers and stuff that have enough money to pay to get their research done. So all the research that just benefits us small-scale people, unless we can put coalitions together to pay that money, we no longer get any research done. That includes the extension service, which provided huge amounts of information with the with the uh, master gardeners, you know, that was a great thing in lots of states and that was started in the state of Washington and now that funding has been cut back because all the universities figure well we don't have enough money we'll just cut out this stuff to the small scale people and to, they don't really need it we need, they, that's what they think they think we just need to they need to support the you know the, the big guys that've got a million dollars and, and and so that's what's happening as funding is taken away it's all being funded by private, uh, large businesses that want to do, you know, like you say, GMOs, or they want to develop a certain variety of wine grape or whatever. And so the, the money now for research that helps us is kind of gone. And so it, it means that places like your show and our nursery and, and uh, anybody giving information to the public, people are wanting that more and more and having less and less you know, publicly financed places to find that information. And what is what do you guys do at Raintree to kind of counter this? I mean, you guys have a the variety alone is just a, is massive to me. And I guess you've taken a lot of this on your own shoulders to be able to do this. Um, some of it. I mean, as far as the research, I mean, it's kind of hurting us in that we're not able to find as many more new varieties. You know, but. Um, we're uh, our we have horticulturists, so and we're just paying them to spend more time, you know, more days, like all year round, answering people's questions. So we, you know, that's what kind of distinguishes us, or you know, in, in general, just even garden centers. Your local garden center all over the United States, you know, is, is probably a small business run by people that are really know a lot about horticulture, you know, and. 80 to 90% of the plants sold in America are sold at the big box stores. 
you know, and at Walmarts and places like that where they know nothing about the varieties. They can't give you the information. So, you know, we really are trying to uh, just do what we can to um, give people information. And, and, you know, I encourage them to go to their local garden centers where, you know, you have a family-owned business that where the people are going to know a lot more, even though it costs a little bit more money to buy there. You know, that's the kind of the back, back you know, that, that type of information, which used to be provided by the universities, but isn't as much so anymore. Um, you know, we just need to do what we can to, to promote that information and, and to promote, you know, more, you know, people who are, who know about it and who are selling to people in their local areas, things that will do well. You guys do a lot with that. Just, I mean, with your catalog alone, you've actually saved me from making some poor decisions because when I've read the information in your catalog, if I happen to see somebody else selling a product, I, I've realized sometimes that they, um, they're not really selling me what I need to have success. And what I mean, just one example would be, um, I didn't know hazelnuts generally needed two varieties to cross-pollinate. So right. I've seen people selling, you know, they have generic basically selling a hazelnut bush. But right. it, it, it's just one, they only sell one variety. Well, I don't have no idea what variety it is, and therefore I don't know if I'm getting a mix where I'm going to get cross-pollination. So the way you guys run your catalog, that's what I've said, folks, if you guys haven't done so yet, request one and try to get these guys some business because the information in there alone will save you from making huge mistakes. I mean, if you plant a tree and spend four years training it, and then it doesn't produce because it's not self-fertile, you got a long way to go to fix that problem. Right, exactly. The actual amount you spend on the tree is only a small part of your investment in it, you know, from time and money. And yeah, I mean, yeah, and our, our website is raintreenursery.com and people are welcome to, you know, go to the website or our, our phone number is, uh, 800-391-8892 and people could give us a call. We'll, we'll try to help them. One thing that I've been thinking of lately is interesting is I've been thinking that the way that people sell things in America is is kind of the way that people sell plants in America, you know, that, you know, get this because it's easy to do, you know, and, uh, you know, buy this plant, you know, because it's, you know, really easy to grow and it's going to produce huge amounts of fruit and blah, blah, blah. I think it'd be interesting to start to sell um, plants in just to- like the totally the opposite way, you know, that this is time-consuming and it's really hard to do and it takes a lifetime worth of experience to get really good at it and that when you buy plants, a bunch of them are going to die at first, you know, as you're learning and that you need to learn, and as you learn, you'll get better and better at it. It's like you're engaging in a lifelong science experiment, and you're, you're just learning a little bit at a time. And you and you need to go to somebody in your neighborhood, you know, who maybe you don't even know, and who has a really nice garden, and ask them questions because most people who have gardens, they like the peace and quiet of being in their garden, but they love it when somebody comes around and, you know says how great their garden is, you know, everybody likes that, and, you know, pe- most often people are willing to help you, because we have, like, all these 
people, you know, in the United States that don't know are totally disconnected from growing food and, and learning how to sustain themselves. And they owe it to themselves and their families and their future generations to retrain, you know, their family and friends, wherever they care about, in learning how to, to sustain themselves and their family. I mean, that's one of the most important things they can do for themselves and their, and their family. And that's what they're doing, like, when they get a plant. Like, for instance, if you get a, uh, if you bring a uh, newborn baby home from the hospital and you, and you put the baby, like, where you can see the baby, you know, in sight, and you just watch the baby, but you never actually do anything to care for the baby, the baby's not going to do very well. You know, the baby's probably going to, going to die. Nobody, of course, would do that. But a living little plant is, just, you know, requires the same level of understanding and skill and care that a newborn baby does. And the more you care for it and nourish it, the better it will do. And the more you learn about it, you know, the better, you know, you'll do. And so, you know, I was just thinking, you know, that we should be telling people that it's not that it's easy and fast, but that it's hard and time-consuming and that you're going to fail a bunch of the times, but tell people why it's so important, you know, that they learn these skills and I, how rewarding it is to learn them. And I completely agree, and I think there's something there to be said with preserving varieties because it's the most difficult to grow things and most difficult to grow varieties that we've lost. Um, more in the annual vegetable world, but... Uh, I heard a speaker one time, I think it was Jules Dervais out in California, say that if, 18, if in 1880 a dollar bill represented all the seed varieties that we had available in 1880, lettuce, carrot, spinach, squash, you name it all together, today we have three cents left. Is that right? I didn't know that. And, and I was blown away by that. And his call is, well, let's preserve what we have left and let's try to rediscover some of what was lost because some of it's still there. We just don't know that it's there. And I think you guys have uncovered a lot of things. You know, just reading your catalog, this variety was found in the Ukraine. This variety was found, you know, in Germany. This variety was found in Austria. This was found in... And I, I just look at that, and I'm blown away, and I had no idea that there was some level of uh, university-level research at one time, anyway, that was helping to fuel that. Uh, that that's quite fascinating. I, it it kind of bums me out to hear that it's 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 not what it used to be, um, and hopefully individuals can maybe start to be more involved. I look to the Internet and social media and all this information sharing that maybe we can find a lot of things that are going on out there uh, that previously were just unknown. Yeah, no, that's right. And throughout the world, there's all these wonderful varieties that most people don't know about because it's not just in the United States that people are losing um, contact with all the skills that they needed to to survive it's you know pretty much throughout the world as places become more you know electronic and industrialized and of course i mean there were what, three quarters of a billion people moving from the country to the city in china over the next 20 years i, I can't even begin to imagine what's going to be lost in that i mean that's the biggest movement of mankind to the city ever ever right and it's right. it's it, 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 it staggers the mind that you know, because I, I mean, there's things that, like, even when I was in, in the army and I was stationed in Panama, there's fruits and things that are down there. I can't even tell you what they're called. But if I saw one, I'd be like, "Oh, I remember that." And I can tell you what it tastes like, but I don't even know what it is. And, there, and I've never seen them anywhere. And there's probably all types of things left to be discovered or maybe rediscovered. 
So yeah. um, that's why I believe in supporting companies like Raintree because you guys are the ones doing the work. Right, yeah. No, that's it's really important. And Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about some of the different things that are in your catalog? I've got sure. some stuff I've kind of pulled out that I've been either playing around with or have plans for. One that I, I never heard of before, uh, I got my first Rain Tree catalog, is called Sea Buckthorn. And that's a unique plant, and it fixes nitrogen as well, right? It does. Yeah, Sea Buckthorn is in, it's a very nutritious and medicinal plant. It's super high in vitamin E and vitamin C. It's, it was used as even, it, it's grown a lot in, in uh, Russia and China. In northern Europe, and it's a real winter hardy plant. It'll, it's hardy to like 50 below zero. And it doesn't do as well in the south. It, you know, you can try it, but you may have some trouble with it, like in Arkansas. But in, you could, but as long as you have, you know, some chill and, you know, I think you could still, you know, try to grow it. Sure. And, and, and see how it does. But definitely anywhere north of there would would uh, would do well. So a lot of the country will do well. It grows well here in western Washington, and it's it's a really pretty plant. It's got kind of silvery long leaves, like you say. It's a nitrogen fixture in the autumn olive family. It's kind of an upright grower, and it needs a male and, and female. You just need one male and a bunch of females, and it's got kind of a tart juice, but it's a, a juice that's kind of got a guava citrus kind of flavor. It's got a really nice flavor. It's a bright yellow, and the, the berries are bright orange or yellow, and they completely cover the bush. So when you look at the bush, you're looking at the, the grayish green and huge masses of, of yellow. So it's really ornamental, and uh, it's, a, it's a great plant, and it's you know, a leading medicinal plant, in, uh, like I said, in, in Asia and in Eastern Europe. And amazingly, most people here in America have never even heard of it. And it's like very widely grown. Yeah. So it would be a, another one is Aronia, uh, Melanocarpa. That's a, uh, super productive, kind of a black berry that's round, kind of looks like a, a little bit like a big blueberry or something like that. And it's again kind of tart and really good for, for making juice and stuff. A lot of these are great for cooking and recipes and they're really healthful. And they've got a lot of uh, anthocyanins and uh, antioxidants in them, you know, especially like the well, the dark blue berries too. Mm -hmm. The erroneous and super productive and easy to grow and real pretty fall color. The first thing I thought of when I saw aronia was I'm a, I'm a home brewer, and one of the things I make in addition to beers is, is meads, you know, honey based wines. Oh yeah. And, and when I thought when I saw aronia, I'm like the tartness. You know, with maybe some mesquite honey, uh, it just seems like a natural fit. Another one that um, I always remember my grandmother talking about and could never even find them until I found you guys. They're called Gumi or Gumi or I, I'm not even sure how you say it. I can't yeah, remember. Gumi. Yeah, those, those look like really like an awesome thing to grow as well. They are. They're, they're like they're an they're in the same uh, uh, species as uh, autumn olive. They're an Eleagnus, but they're uh, Eleagnus multiflora. And they're bigger than most autumn olives, and uh, they have a little pit in them. But they're really when they're when they get really ripe in late summer, they they taste really good. And and again, they make they make wonderful 
jams and preserves and juices and things like that. And that's one thing that people need to to learn about is that a lot of these fruits are, are really good, but they're not mainly for fresh eating. They're for, you know, making things out of. And in Eastern Europe and in China, their, their juices are their medicines, you know, um, kind of folk medicines that they blend different juices that have, have these different healthy properties for their good flavor as well as for their healing properties. So there's no clean distinction like there is here between a medicine and a food. There, a lot of their foods are, you know, I mean, ours are too, but, but they realize that. I was just saying, there's some inherent wisdom there. It's not really that it's different. It's that they're aware of, of the um, of the value of what they have when they look at something. Right, right. I think there's a huge overlap between nutrition and medicine that, unfortunately, many modern practitioners, as far as medical practitioners, they don't see it anymore. Right. Uh, it's it's food. It, food is the original medicine, and if you don't believe that, don't eat. You'll die. I mean, it's it's right. it's pretty simple. And if you get a sick person, you feed them really good food. A lot of times, that's all it takes, and they'll get better. Um, yeah. It doesn't solve everything. You can't cure, you know, somebody with a they had a car wreck and has a yield sign in their spleen by giving them an apple. But an right. apple could do more than we give it credit for in America today. For sure. I mean, that's not to say. I mean, I know people who have carried this too far and have died of. Where in who actually died when if they would have taken antibiotics they would have survived. I mean we obviously overuse antibiotics, but sometimes I think if you're really sick and antibiotics will, you know, and nothing else has worked and they will cure you. That absolutely, I, I am definitely going to take them. So I, you know, I, I try to like to find the best out of folk medicine and modern medicine. Let's, another one that I've been really thinking about growing myself, and I've talked to the audience a lot about, is gooseberry. And I always remember gooseberries being these really tart things, but you guys actually have some that are more of an out-of-hand type thing you would eat out-of-hand oh, yeah. sweetness yeah, to them. Yes, for sure. They're sweet, and the skin is tart on all gooseberries. But a lot of them you can just pop the skin off if you don't want that tartness. But the gooseberries themselves, a lot of them are sweet, and there's some, some real mildew-resistant gooseberries that you can grow. And so, yeah, the European gooseberries are, are really things for people to grow. And then currants. Uh, black currants, you know, are incredibly nutritious and and uh, have really an interesting flavor. So, so we always had a pretty good set of hedges of currant hedges, and uh, my grandmother would always make um, jam out of them, and then oh, okay. we would take a portion of them and with our with our grapes, and we would do a batch of wine that was a currant grape wine. Oh, fantastic! And it was it was really unique. They're not they're not something you really want to eat straight. I mean, they're right. kind of really tart. Right, they make they an incredible, incredible jam. And, I mean, our audience is big on, you know, food storage. So all of these things are things that not only do you produce them in your yard, but when you convert them into a jam or a jelly or a wine or a mead, it, you know, it, it lasts for, a, you know, with mead. If it's a year later, it tastes better. I mean, it right. gets right. better with age. And then I, I also learned about kiwis from your, your catalog. You're the first person that I ever learned from the kiwis uh, weren't something that grew in, like, tropical uh, rainforest. I always thought kiwis were tropical. And I don't right. know why, because New Zealand isn't really a very tropical environment. There's some of the highest mountains in the world and the coldest environments you can find in New Zealand. But I just always thought of them as tropical. You grow kiwis, you know, from zone like down to zone three. I think the the hardy arctics will grow into. You can, yeah. And there's different types of like kiwis. They're all they all look. Um, they don't. 
yeah, there's the type of party kitties. There's the colomicta, which are the hardiest, and they grow best in, uh, in, in pretty cold places. And then there's the argutas that, that are hardy, you know, pretty darn hardy, like the 25 below zero or something like that. And the, the argutas ripen a lot quicker. And so do the colomnictas than they are. So around here, the argutas do really well because we don't have a long enough ripening season to ripen the, the fuzzy kiwis. But they all, um, once you peel off the fuzzy kiwi skin, you've got that green, you know, that interesting, beautiful green and then white and stuff color of the kiwi inside. It's exactly the same for all those other kiwis. They're just smaller, but they produce in big clusters like grapes. And so you just pick them and pop them in your mouth because they have smooth skin, and uh, they taste exactly like the other kiwis. And you can get quite a bit of production. I mean, I was reading, you know, upwards of sometimes a really good established vine in the right conditions, upwards of a hundred pounds of production. Yeah, the argutas are kind of ridiculous. I mean, I put one on the side of my house and had this trellis and. Eventually, I had to take it out of there because it was so, it grew like 30 feet a year, and eventually it started growing under my shingles, and, you know, it was going to, you know, take apart my whole house. Unbelievable. So, it's, so you want to have a nice strong trellis for it, like an overhead trellis that's like about seven feet tall or something like that, like a big T-bar trellis or something like that, or a box trellis, so that you can go walk right underneath and, and pick them and, and have it be strong enough so it doesn't break the trellis down. So, um, yeah, it's it's incredibly rapid. Growth. Nice problem to have, though. Um, yeah, and, and massive amounts of fruit, more than you could ever. One vine, one female, you need a male and a female. One, and you just put the male over on the side and make sure he doesn't take up too much of the space and let the female, you know, take up most of the space. And, and one female vine will give you more kiwis than you could possibly either know what to do with unbelievable and i mean i think that's a good that's a good type of thing because we have a lot of people that like me eventually want bigger pieces of land but we also have a lot of people that are sitting on you know the quarter acre half acre suburban lot and putting in you know a couple full-size trees is is maybe beyond even what they can do but a lot of these bushes and if you notice i'm talking about a lot of your shrubs your vines your bushes because they do give people a little bit i think maybe faster payback as far as maybe one, two, three seasons in, you're getting some production. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things that, I mean, now we've talked about that, that some things are just incredibly productive and relatively easy to grow. And if you just want to grow a few things and you just want to produce a lot of your own healthy fruit, one thing is like thornless blackberries, like the triple crown or something like that. And it will grow in most of the country. And it, it produces just massive amounts of fruit. Or one grapevine can produce massive amounts of fruit, or, or a male and a female uh, kiwi vine are going to give you huge amounts of fruit. You know, so there's things like that that you're going to just get lots of fruit, or like a little patch of raspberries or something like that. Given you brought the raspberries and blackberries up, let's talk about them because I wanted to have you explain to folks what a primocane uh, variety is, why somebody would want a primocane blackberry. Oh, okay. Yeah, primocanes are interesting because they, primo means like first, and so they produce on the first year wood. Usually the traditional raspberries and also blackberries all produced on, on second year wood, on the flora canes. And they had to be two years old before they would produce. 
and then so you would have it's like a two-year cycle and after they produced you take out those two-year-old canes then the one-year-old canes you know their second year would produce you take them out and maybe be replaced by some new one-year-old canes and those are the regular raspberries and, and you can still grow those are still good to grow because they they are like in the summer they come on in in july um, but there's also the parmacanes and what you can do there is let them grow for a year cut the cut the raspberry and now there's a new blackberry for the first time and you can do the same thing with and you cut it back to the ground and it, it grows back each year and in august all the way through frost it'll produce for months it'll produce raspberries and you it's easier to take care of because you just kind of cut them just barely above the ground and let them grow back so if you really wanted to extend your harvest over a long period of time you could grow a you know a summer bearing like a July bearing variety. You could even grow like a very early variety, a later variety, and a primocane variety, and you right. would extend your your harvest. I think that's another thing people really need to get in touch with. And you do this with anything, right? There's early and light, late apples, early and late pears. So if you have right. something you really like, you can spread things out based on having multiple varieties of the same type. Right, and you can have fruit all the way from. Uh July that way all the way through whenever like our frosts are we have some frosts in October but they still keep producing after that so we have like some amount of fruit on a lot of this until Thanksgiving so that's a lot of months of production and you can definitely do that like in Arkansas you have months and months of production absolutely and I mean I, I get it here in Texas too but it's um, I just don't have as much space to work with and I've also been reluctant to put too many things permanently in the ground. I've tried to do some things for the next homeowner, but on the other hand, I want to make my bigger investment on my five-acre spread, you know. Um, one of the things I've also been looking at a lot, and I've talked a lot about on air, you guys are like ground zero for these things, is hazelnuts. And uh, right. they're like one of my favorite things in the world. They're a good nut, but I mean, they're even, a, to me, they're like a grain, like a high-protein grain substitute because hazelnuts make a really great flour as well. And I mean, you know, like a flour you'd make a bread out of. Yeah, they do, and they make like a great crust, like just, you know, use it as a crust to make a uh, a pie or something like that. And, you know, really, really good for you and, and also, uh, you know, really tasty. So now there's been this filbert blight, the eastern filbert blight, that's been a, a problem here in, in Washington and Oregon. And so now Oregon State University finally has these varieties that are immune to the filbert blight. So people can, again, plant them and not worry about that about the, the blight, so we're offering these new immune varieties. So nobody's probably ever heard of them, but I think one's it's called Jefferson and Santiam and Yam Hill, and they're varieties that, that won't get the blight. Because, I mean, that's been, that's kind of like the, the grandchild of the chestnut blight that wiped out the chestnut trees. I mean, it's yeah. been really hard on people, and it's made, it's made a lot of people that want to grow them just give up, throw their hands up, and say, I'm not going to do it, because... There's so much to be said for them, not just from what they produce. I, I, to me, I think they're overlooked for even, like, if you're not going to eat them all, but if you do wildlife management, I mean, yes. squirrels and deer, if you have two plants, that's kind of a problem. But if you have a whole hedgerow built out of them, you, unless right. you do commercial production, you'll never eat them all anyway. And right. deer and squirrels go nuts over those things. Yeah, no, they love them. And they make, and in England, they used them for, for uh, you know, thousands of years, maybe, as hedges. And, since they sucker, they make a perfect hedge. So it's it's until the blight killed or was about to kill ours, and we took them all out of it. That was the that was the hedge we had in front of between the road and our house, and it, it grew about 
10, 15 feet tall. We just let it sucker, and it was a beautiful hedge, you know. And in the winter, you know, it was you could kind of see through it a little bit, but because it didn't have the leaves. But it was mainly in the summer that we were outside anyway, and wanted wanted the hedge, and so it's it makes a great hedge, and so it's it's that's wonderful. Just plant them about four feet apart and let them make a make a great hedge. And they that's what they did in. In England, like for fence rows, when they keep the animals in, they were kept in by, by, uh, by hedgerows. And I think that's a big thing for a lot of our, you know, homesteaders from large scale people that are on multiple acres to even some small acreage. Um, you could either pay to put a fence in, pay to maintain it, uh, keep working on it, have it damaged, have to repair it, right. or, or you can you can put in a fence that actually provides food for your livestock and yourself. Right. It's a windbreak. It's a fence. Like you say, it's. It produces, you know, and then you can put a kind of a mixed hedge. You can throw, you know, rows of goses in there, and you know, nobody will get through it bad. <laughs> talk, talk about those a bit too, because those are those are a thing my grandmother used to, to grow is the old fashioned roses with the big caps. There's there's a lot to be said for that plant as well. Yeah, the rose goses. I mean, there's a lot of these modern hybrid tea roses and stuff that are hard to grow, but the rose goses are practically indestructible disease-resistant, and they produce these big um, red hips that, you know, you can make jelly out of or throw a bunch of, let's say you're making cider or something like that, and you you throw them in there and you get all the vitamin C content, you know, along along with it. And uh, so... Great it, flavor, too. My grandmother used to make jelly out of rose hip jelly, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, that was one of my jobs was pruning the roses every year as a little kid. Oh, it was, there's some real, real, real wisdom passed down if you listen to uh, to, to some of the uh, the prior generations. My grandparents um, were both uh, first generation immigrants from the Ukraine, and oh, wow. everything that they did with their land was it, it had to do something for you. You mentioned earlier right. about everybody being consumer and nobody being a producer. That was a lesson I had really young. That you know, if we take the time to put something in here, it's not just so that we can look at it. I mean, that's a good part too, but we should be, t- be able to get something back from it. And as long as we keep doing what we need to do, it'll keep giving us what, what we need to come from it. Like, the other thing I had to do is every year, is that, this is real hard to get a, you know, an eight-year-old to do, go down to the little, the little pond and fish for sunfish and come home and bury a sunfish under every rose bush. You know, that was, was one of my, my chores. And that was a mm-hmm. happy chore, I guess, so to speak. And, and there, But there are a lot of things. And we didn't have a lot of land there. We had about three-quarters of an acre you know, and the house sitting on it, a garage and a, a shed. So it was only so much land to work with. We had grapevines and things like that. Um, we have also, and you guys sell a lot of variety of this. We had a lot of apples, uh, but we would do, so we could have multiple varieties. We had like dwarf and semi-dwarf treats. And I right. think a lot of homeowners could do a lot with these smaller varieties and maybe even Espelor. Uh, uh, I don't know how to say You can never get that word. Espo- right. Well, I think it's a, it's French. So it'd be yeah. kind of Espalier. Espalier. Okay. So Espalier. Uh, style. Now we didn't do that, but that's something I've actually been really intrigued with is is doing this with fruiting trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's and there's dwarf rootstocks now that you can these mini dwarf rootstocks that you can get trees that only grow five or six feet tall. And in Holland and other places where they don't much land, that's what they use commercially to grow fruit on because you get more production per acre if you have really short trees because. When you get when you have really tall trees, you don't get more production per acre. You just get production higher up on the tree. 
what the only the way to get fruit to produce is to have sun shine on the fruit in the leaves. And so you're going to have a canopy that's going to produce the fruit. And the question is, do you want the canopy 20 feet off the ground or do you want the canopy like 4 feet off the ground so you can easily reach it? And I think it's situational. If you're designing a food forest and you want a high canopy, a sub-tree layer, and a bush layer, right. and you're building out, well, I want that high canopy. But if all I have is a half acre in a backyard, right. I want my canopy down at four feet. And right. there's a lot of advantages there, too, right? Like um, for picking, for any kind of maintenance, uh, right. if you have bird problems, netting, things like that. Right. So there's a lot of things like that. So you... That's interesting. So what, what part of the Ukraine did your family come from? You know, I really can't tell you, other than it was the southern part down toward the Black Sea somewhere. And that's oh, that's about oh. as much as I know. Um, oh, okay. Maybe I, even near Yalta or something like that. Possibly. I mean, these are questions I would love to ask, but, you know, when you're, when you're 10, you don't ask. And at this point in my life where you're wise enough to want to know, there's no one to ask anymore. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that would be, I would love to someday take a visit over there. I was, um, I was reading a lot of stuff in you, in your, uh, your catalog comes from that part of the world. Uh, right. the Black Sea, you even have a variety of tea that's grown near the Black Sea. And it's like the, right. the furthest north tea is commercially grown. And you guys yeah. have variety. I mean, cause we import all our tea from, you know, everywhere, but I think most Americans can actually grow tea if they wanted to. Right. Yeah. You can. It's, it's hardy to probably about 10, you know, Anything above between zero and ten degrees and above, it would you know it do it'd do well. Yeah, my my relatives uh, came from the U- from the Ukraine also, and I and I got a chance to uh, go over there and visit them over there and help bring them over to the United States about twenty years ago. It was really fascinating, and and we got to visit the Vavilov Institutes there in in the former Soviet Union, and they have a a whole um, it, it's 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 totally different the way they looked at agriculture than we looked at it. What they tried to do is they tried to have a Vavilov uh, Institute uh, horticulture station in every different climate throughout the former Soviet Union, and then they tried to grow everything, all the different types of foods at each station, because they had so many educated scientists that they had enough that they could. And they didn't pay them hardly anything. And so whenever you went to any of these research stations, they were finding out the best varieties, say, of almonds or apricots or peaches or whatever it is to grow in all these harsh climates. So in the United States, like if we wanted to grow almonds, we find the best place, like in in California, you know, in Northern California, to grow almonds, we put a research station there. And we do really a good job of marketing, telling everybody they should buy a can a day and everything. And and we grow some really good almonds, right? But what if you want to grow almonds to be self-sustaining where you live and you don't happen to live in that part of California and those almonds won't grow for you? Where are you going to find varieties that are going to do well in other climates? So instead of trying to find the best place to grow almonds and the easiest almond to grow in the best place, they just try to grow every almond in any place, and whatever one grows there, well, gee, that's the right one for that place. It's, it's, a, it's kind of the, the whole Soviet mentality, um, the, the, the positive aspects of it, um, that it always seems simplicity. Um, it makes me think of the story with, you know, the space race, and they needed something to write with in space, and America spent millions of dollars to figure out how to make this pen that would write in a weightless environment, and the Russians used a pencil. 
Right. It, it just it, it never ceases to amaze me because I have another a good friend of mine who is actually was born and raised in Ukraine lives in um, actually he's in UAE now. He uh, is a uh, he trains security forces for the uh, Royal Guard there. And uh, but he grew up in Ukraine as a young man. Was actually on the, uh, the the Russian Olympic judo squad, and uh, he he's always told me that that their mentality was always the most simple, direct, and positive result. Where we want to try to like take everything apart. He said it's even the planes. You know, we built this F sixteen. It's like the most advanced fighter in the world. But their MIG you could do almost do almost everything the F sixteen can. But some kid with a hammer and a toolbox can work on it. You know, and, and I think there's tremendous things that we can learn from other parts of the world because of stuff like that. And as you mentioned, that when we started this conversation with the dwarf apples in places like Holland, well, why do they do it? They don't have the space, so they right. they make do with what they have. In Eastern Europe, they had all these disease-resistant variety apples. We offer some of them, and I said, well, why did they develop the disease-resistant varieties? And I didn't know they were so interested in the environment. And he said, they're not interested in the environment. They just didn't have any money. They couldn't afford the pesticides and stuff. So they had to have something that would grow with almost no inputs because nobody had any money to buy anything. And so that's why they came up with these, you know, disease-resistant varieties that will do well for us. It wasn't, you know, necessarily out of a great concern for the planet. or. or but that's the result, planet. isn't it? I mean, that, The result is, is, is what we need. Yeah. And, and see, that's what I've been trying to say since I started this show almost three years ago now, that... A lot of the things that we do, whether they're environmental or whether they're for our preparedness or, or anything else, if we do the right things in the most simplistic way possible, we end up with positive solutions that all the people that make things complicated claim they really want but spend all their lives not achieving. Right. A, a disease-resistant apple doesn't need a chemical. So now I don't right. have to worry about how to make a safe chemical. I just don't use any chemicals at right. all. right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me too. The like, there's a giant um, gap now in, in animosity between like liberals and conservatives and right wing and left wing and stuff. And but I think what a lot of people have in common, regardless of what they consider to be their politics, is that they want to uh, they want to learn how to survive and, and sustain themselves and the people that they love and stuff like that. Some people, you know, I'd say people maybe on the left would say, well, what we want to do is create a community of people that want to do that. But if even if you don't believe that, if you're just doing it because you feel like we live in a dog-eat-dog world and you need to learn these skills to survive yourself, you know, really you're you're creating that same type of uh, community amongst people you know doing that anyway and and we'll you know we'll all uh, you know could be the better for that yeah I, I mean I'll put this way I don't think anything builds community the way food does especially food you produce yourself because I can try to get my neighbor to listen to me about anything I care about all day long and right. if it's an intellectual conversation they're in their camp I'm in mine but if I send my kid next door with a bag full of tomatoes to say, you know, tell Mrs. Smith that we had extra this year and she can have these, right? The the, the reception to that is always positive. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and free food always works. I, you know, I got into to, to researching a lot of these things because I was doing a lot of study into uh, something called permaculture, 
And a lot of the permaculture work has been done in the tropics. So I would see these permaculture food forests and, uh, you know, farm forestry going on in all these systems, and I'd say, wish I could grow that. I wish I could grow that, you know. And I'd go, I can't grow that. And one of the things was passion fruit. And they grow passion fruit freaking everywhere. So then I'm thumbing through your catalog, and we have a native passion fruit called maypop. Right. And the other cool thing is we have these passion fruits that just, um, that are pastoral edulous that are just indoor plants if you live where it freezes. But the cool thing is in a gallon pot in your, in your window, they'll produce a bunch of, of, uh, really good tasting passion fruit inside. So like that's an edible house plant. And something apartment, cause I always get this. So I have an apartment. What can I do? So if you have a yeah. good sunny window in an apartment, you can grow passion fruit in your apartment. Yeah. And beautiful flowers, and then you have the, you know, and you just put a couple of strings up, let it go, you know, a little jungle there by your window, and have all this good fruit, and you know, so even in an apartment, you can you can do that. You know, and I think that that really kind of hits on something I also say to people all the time when they start wanting to grow stuff and they want to grow, you know, the. Uh, the red delicious apple or whatever. And, uh-huh. you know, I'm like, you know, first of all, it may not be the right variety for where you're at, but why do you want to grow in your backyard the commoditized varieties of things that are sitting in the supermarket for the cheapest price you could possibly pay? Why yeah. not grow things that you either can't get, can't find, or can only find at certain times and expand your, your availability uh, and focus on the things, because those are the things that are also the most expensive. So, I mean, because there's some varieties of apples that are just dynamite that most people have never even heard of, let alone tasted. So, like right. passion fruit, you can't just go down to Tom Thumb and, and right. get a pound of passion fruit any day you want to. Right. Yeah, one of the things that is easiest to grow is, and people ask the wrong question, what's the best variety of apple, the best variety of plum? To me, the question is not the, What's the best tasting one? The question is, what's the easiest? What's one that tastes really good? That's the easiest to grow. And to me, the to, for years, the methylene plum is, if you don't do much to it at all and just let it grow itself fertile, it just produces tons and tons of delicious plums that make you know wonderful jellies. What's the name of that variety again? Methylene, M-E-T-H-L-E-Y. Cool. Very cool. And so that was a good question to ask people, you know, tell me just a couple things, like the Italian prune, you know, it's just going to produce massive amount of fruit for for lots of people. And and that's, I think, a really good question to ask is if you're, you know, not even if you're just starting out, I, let's have a, a few basic things that we're going to grow that every year are going to give us lots of of fruit. And then we can add some of the other stuff in, you know, after that. And I think we have to have a plan for what we're going to do with the surplus too, whether it's, you know, give some away or, or what have you. I mean, one of the big, big on canning, preserving, uh, dehydration though, a lot of things uh, are, you know, excellent dehydrated apples in particular. Um, I've got one of these core things that you turn it and it like peels the apple and cores it and makes it into like a, like a coiled spring right. thing, right? And right. you, and, I mean, dehydrated apples, you make an apple pie out of that, you might as well be fresh as far as you're concerned. And yeah, that does a lot to make the pantry deeper as well. Right. And that, that's great in leathers, too, where you make a, you know, like a, kind of a juice, a syrup out of it, and then you pour it on, 
and then dry it and make a leather out of it. It's just wonderful, you know, snacks for for people. So yeah, there's all kinds of wonderful things that people and people are doing more of it. And I think this back to working with the schools. A lot of people um, work with their local school and get their local school to to make uh, healthier foods. That's a real big movement around here. I'd like to see them do some more planning with productive varieties. I mean, I look at city parks, highway medians, schoolyards, all these places, and we're spending taxpayer money for fertilizer and water to grow right. fruitless pear trees and pistachios that don't produce any nuts. And I think all of this could be growing food with the same inputs or less right. input. And the, right. and the food can be given to the children. It can be given to the community. And it doesn't cost anything, and it, it's maddening to me, all these places that were growing crepe myrtles, we could be growing right. grapes. I mean, I, I, I don't get it, honestly. It's like they yeah. don't want to solve the problem, or it's too obvious of a solution. I, I don't... It's like when I grew, I grew up in... It kind of split between Florida and Pennsylvania. When we were in Florida, we were in this uh, huge apartment complex that the landscapers had just... I, I don't know what got under their skin or made them do it, or it was just maybe a guy that was into it, but there were plums and pomegranates and, and orange trees and, and oh wow there were fruits everywhere and nobody even you know as a kid whatever was in season i was eating you know as soon as, as i found out what a pomegranate was from a school teacher and i'm like oh i those things grow in our you know apartment complex and, and wow. i was eating them every year after that i mean these things can be done very easily in a backyard or on a larger scale and i i don't get why it hasn't been seen as more of a solution until now yeah, no, I don't know, but it is, it is catching on now, and that's that's great if you can do that or talk to your like if you're talking to your park department, parks department. I mean, the idea that there's edible plants and then there's ornamental plants is kind of silly. I mean, edible plants, a lot of them are extremely ornamental. They're beautiful trees, you know. They have beautiful blossoms, just like ornamental plants, you know. And the fruit's pretty as well as. Uh, you know, so a lot of them are just as ornamental as ornamental plants. You know, I want to I want to get to where we have this nuisance of all this stuff falls off of them, you know, and creates a nuisance. You have to eat it. Stuff's called food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I um I talked to a guy at like Lowe's one time, and I said, "Why don't you guys have more fruit trees, nut trees?" And he said, "Because people don't like them because of the the, the, the lawn litter they create." And, and I was blown away by that. Um, and you were talking about ornamentals. I do kind of want to get wrapped up now. We're getting toward the end of our time here. But um, one of the varieties I found in your, your, your catalog are edible fruit-producing dogwoods. And there's yeah. dogwoods everywhere in America for their beautiful flowers. Yes. But there's actually varieties to produce edible fruit as well. Yeah, there are. Some of the Kusa dogwoods, there's one called Big Apple and some other varieties that have good-tasting fruit. And the Cornish Moss have pretty yellow flowers really early in the spring. They're a type of dogwood also called, called Cornelian Cherry, and they have really good t- t- tasting fruit. So it's got a little pit in it and stuff, and it's kind of oblong shaped and it's real pretty. And So, yeah, there's some some definitely good edible uh, edible dogwoods. The first time I saw those, I, the first thing out of my in my mind, my home brewer mind, was Cornelian Cherry Wheat Ale. Oh. And I just thought that would be so unique. And for a, um, like some of these mic, like microbreweries are really popular now. For one of these microbreweries to latch on to something like that, because, I mean, those dogwoods, they're not a really, um, 
They're not something you're going to wait like a like a hickory tree like 15 years to get production from. No, I mean, you and they're also a, they're also fairly small. They only full size. They're only like 12, 14 feet tall. They're not giant trees. Wow. So I think those would be an, something like that. I would just see as you know what a unique niche product. And I think that we, that's like to get this to catch on. We've got to get more and more entrepreneurs because we're the ones that do stuff. You know, we're the ones uh-huh. that make things happen to latch on to some of these things and start to realize that, you know, marketing can be a positive force if we'll just market positive things. And uh, that, that's that, that that's just one of the ones I came up with. Uh, but I also want to, as we wrap up, I want to, because I know there's a lot of people that want to order stuff. And um, when you're ordering a lot of these varieties, and you're, you guys are shipping this stuff through the mail, they want to know it's going to get there and it's going to, you know, it's going to be alive when it shows up. And you guys can do that, but there's certain things that only can ship certain times of the year, uh, or right. run out till next year. And could you maybe just fill people in on ordering times and things like that? Okay. Well, what would happen? Say if you live in the east, um, on the website or the catalog, um, which you, we we ship every two weeks, and what we do is we we rent like a refrigerated um, trailer, and we fill it up with all the orders going back to a certain part of the country and we ship them to like the UPS hub in Chicago and they get there within three days so they get there a lot quicker and there's a lot less handling and then out of the hub they get to people within three or four days after that so um, they arrive in really good shape but we send them I mean we'll send them whenever you want them but if you let us choose we'll try we'll choose a time that works well so it's us- it's March for the southern states early March and then all the way into May for the for the most northern states. And so we try to send it to you at a time it'll do well. And it's completely dormant because we keep it in cold storage. And so what we do is we'll keep the plant in cold storage so it's completely dormant, even though, you know, things are starting to grow in your area. And then we uh, take some uh, shredded uh, newspapers and stuff like that, and we put it around the roots to keep it moist and send it, either plants like that. Some of them are potted, but the bare roots ones have newspaper wrapped around them in, in, in a little plastic bag. And then when you get them, they are still dormant and will do well. And you just keep them like in a cool place, not out in the sun. Or you could just heal them in, you know, in the shade. Just take a shovel two of, out of dirt and put all of the plants in the roots and throw some dirt around them if, if you want to before you plant them. Or just plant them within a week or two. They'll be fine. And... Uh, and so that's how we how we send them so that they arrive in good condition. So it stands the reason you'd want to try to cons- try to set your planning to a time of year when they would normally be coming out of a dormant state in your area. Right. Not perfect, but you try to hit those like you're saying, March for the south and up into May until into the northeast. Right. We have a little. I mean, ideally, we might try to. The only problem is like the deep south because some years, probably not this year, be fine, but. Some years they have really warm, like January days and stuff like that, and and we would try to get them there earlier, but we can't because it's too cold, you know, on the way and stuff like that to get to them. But now that we, um, but um, now that we have the refrigerator truck, that's not as much of a problem. So the first week in March we start shipping uh, to the to the deep south, and then you know as it goes on through the next two months through the rest of the the country. That, that's how we do it to get it to, to people about the right time and in good, good condition. 
Very cool. And if folks want to order from you, they can get your catalog and they can order directly online. They can do that at your website, which is? Yeah, com. Very cool. And you guys even have like a Facebook fan page now as well. That's actually how I got in touch with you. Yeah, 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 exactly. Jesse, uh, works at the nursery and he's, he's a student at Evergreen College here in, in, uh, in, uh, in environmental studies and, but he's also not like an old person like me and so he's all into, uh, into Facebook and stuff like that and, and so he's on there and if you get on the Facebook you can, uh, you know, talk to, talk to Jesse. Awesome. Well, I'll provide links to your Facebook page and your website and your catalog order form and all that stuff today and some links to some of the individual things on your, uh, you know, your, your website down to the specific product that we talked about today, like some of the, uh, edible dogwoods and gummies and, and hazelnuts and all that stuff, folks. So, you know, Great. this is the time to plan, folks. This is the time to, to be making those choices and get your orders in. That's why I wanted to bring Sam on, you know, early, uh, early spring, late winter, call it what you want to. And, and you're right, Sam, we're not going to have a problem with it being too warm for the winter um, in the south this year. Oh, my God, we had this little tiny ice storm. We got a ha- like three quarters of an inch of ice and an inch of snow on top of it. And we were iced in for a week because we don't yeah. have the equipment to get rid of it. And people right. were saying, an inch of snow is nothing. I'm like, the inch of snow isn't the problem. It's the three quarters of an inch of ice underneath it that's the problem. Yeah. You yeah. know, ice sucks. I mean, I, I can deal with snow, but I do not like right. ice at all. No, ice is not good for staying on the road. No. And it's, it's good at breaking tree limbs and, and damaging your right. trees and damaging your roof and taking your power lines out and right. all that other stuff. So I'm going to be happy to see it go. But yeah. I want to thank you for being with us today, Sam. This has been a great interview. And well, uh, Thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. We'd have you, know, you back want- anytime if you have something come up and you want to come chat about something or you just want to be on the air again, man. All you got to do is let me know, and the door's yeah. always open. Okay. Thanks a lot. Yeah, definitely. We, this way we can let people know about your program because I know people are going to be interested in hearing your other programs too I hope so and uh, with that folks we will wrap up today Uh, this has been Jack Spirico along with Sam Benowitz from Raintree Nursery helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't
Yeah.